Human beings naturally move to self-preservation um, over group collective outcomes. And a good CEO needs to enforce the right behavior because humans naturally go to self me over everyone else, self-preservation. And that means I kill your ideas or I stop them working because I don't win in it. Then that's a win because I preserve myself in that. Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. So hello and welcome to this episode of The Thinking Leader and today I have a very special guest all the way from Melbourne and I'm very excited to talk to Susan Abishara who is a business transformation lead and author of a book with a great title called Is This the End of Agility? which I'm really looking forward to getting into. Susan, welcome to the show. Nice to meet you, Marcus. Um, as you mentioned, I'm in Sudley, Melbourne, even though I'm a Dublin Irish girl. I've been here 23 years and probably for another 23 more. 23 years and 23 more. That's good. So <laughs> it's great to have you on the show. Why did you go from Ireland all the way down to Melbourne? <laughs> Well, I didn't do Ireland all the way to Melbourne. I did um, Ireland. I went to London for a seven-year pit stop, mm -hmm. which was meant to be a six-month pit stop. <laughs> and uh, in the 90s, um, so I left London at the end of a Y2K project. Um, I love talking to people these days about a Y2K project because people in their 30s are like, what was that? And I have to go, well... In 2000, it was a big deal at that moment in time. And working in the technology market in the financial space, so I was working on the trading floor across Citibank and Credit Suisse. Um, the work dried up at the end of Y2K. And I had two choices, stay in London or travel. And I actually wanted to go to New York, but it was easier to get into Australia. And at the time, <laughs> at 1990. Know about you, but the biggest rage was neighbors, <laughs> and I oh. love the Australian life. Do you remember Kylie and Jason? I do, Kylie um, and Jason on Ramsey um, Street. Yeah, and it was just like, well, it's sunny in Australia. They all have barbecues and swimming pools, and obviously, as an Irish person living in London, this um, was unusual for me. So I decided I would go to Australia on a working holiday visa, so no long-term plan to stay other than to travel. And then, of course, life gets in the way. 23 years later, after a plan to travel around Australia, I've done zero travel. I've lived mostly in Melbourne, and um, I've had a family. Isn't that always the way, though? <laughs> and yeah, and I've ended up with um, children and a family who are 100% Australian. I had assumed as an Irish girl, my family would at least be half Irish, but I've learned the hard way that that's not a true statement and I'm the outlier. <laughs> oh, wow. And I love the fact that you were, you were seduced by the sunshine, the barbecues, 
um, the good all, around, all year round weather. And that's exactly why I'm in Cyprus now. We get to live in the UK and Ireland, don't we, and uh, suffer the grey of every day. So yeah. it's great to hear. So you talked about you were working on the financial floor, you know, around Y2K. What were some of the early problems, would you say, that you started to see surfacing across organizations, even back then? Because that was pre-agile. Yeah, I was pre-agile and probably in that as an organization, I'm working in large, big, billion-dollar organizations even then. It was probably only when I came to Australia and I started to work for a startup, very successful but wasn't successful at the time when I joined them in 2000, called seek.com.au. And for the first time ever, I was working for an organization which had no money. So it was quite confronting to come from Citibank and Credit Suisse where money just flowed and you could do whatever you want. And then to come into a small startup organization. And I learned for the first time having lots of money and budget actually is not a positive. It makes you lazy and it makes you make bad decisions. But when I worked for that smaller startup, um, we had to be really careful with every dollar that we spent. And actually, it made us really creative. And that was probably the start of my foray into an agile journey. And it's almost like everything. There was a need. We had no choice. And we had no money. So we had to be really careful with how we spent our time, what we worked on. But that gave us discipline. And that was probably the start of my journey, going from a big budget organization to a smaller budget organization. When I learned in that big budget organization, I could no longer reply. So it forced me to think about what do I do and how can I do it better, faster, cheaper, and quicker. Brilliant. And and I think that's such an important sort of skill to have, isn't it? It's also what you sort of teach your children with spending money. You know, having too much money can often lead to, as you said, to make bad decisions. And I remember I was working in in banking in London and one of my first bosses there was fantastic. And I remember one of the first meetings we went to, they got the executive leadership team around the table and he said, right, here's our budget. Here's what we've got to spend and here's the expectations. He said, but before we do anything, I want you to do something for me. I'm like, okay, what? He said, right, now imagine you're all going to put your hands in your pockets and take out a big wad of cash and stick it on the table. He said, treat that as your personal, you know, submission to the group, if you will. This is your personal contribution. And then as we start to spend this, as the money comes off the top, again, it's coming out of your pocket. He said, if you try and imagine it that way, you'll be far more frivolous in how you spend. You'll be far more, not frivolous in how you spend this. You'll be far more, you know, thoughtful in what we put the money down yeah. on, what we don't throw it away. Whereas, as, as you said, those who don't, it's just like, hey, we're in Vegas, throw the money everywhere. And following that, we know what happens with the bad decisions. So you went from monster conglomerations of these big organizations into these small startups with no money. We're now in the early 2000s. The Agile Manifesto is about to come out. Where was your first taster of that? And what did you think? Well, outside naturally leaning into it in a small startup without actually realizing what we were doing, but we were highly agile in our method and our approach. My first foray probably into a more formal structure would have been in an organization, Australia Post, um, which is obviously our postal system. And effectively, this was a large, back into a large organization, lots of money. 
and they had a big problem, like all postal systems around the world, which was posts and mail was declining and they needed new revenue streams and therefore efficiency became king. So this is my first foray into doing large scale agile in 2008 before the term was coined. And of course, large scale agile before the term was coined was chaos. Um, but we ran big, large, agile teams across 350 people. But the best thing I learned there was we had really good purpose. And the purpose was we needed to introduce a new revenue stream. And we were doing digital identity over um, postage. And effectively, previously, before we had started it, to go into post offices at the time and I love it was took three years to get anything into a post office um, any sort of software changes. and I was just you know mind spinning how could it possibly take um, three years to get into post offices and that was the first project where we worked 300 people and we delivered a digital identity solution so passports driver's license and um, working with children checks but we went in in nine months and it was more where there's a will and there's a way. We had a group of people with a very clear priority as to what good was and everyone, I don't know, chaos, but worked well together. And it's the first time I'd actually seen it work on such a large scale. And it almost gave me the, the power of belief. This is possible. And when we talk about Agile, we still had, because it was quite unionized, and um, we still had big requirement specs. We still had... 45 people required to sign off documents before we went live, but they still embraced it. And we didn't, we didn't worry about any of that. Well, we need 45 signatures, cool. We didn't allow it to stop us or to get in the way. We kept our eye on the prize, which was to introduce a new revenue stream into post offices as quickly as possible. And initially up front, we chose six months and we had chose to put passports in and I suppose the big message we learned there was that's not what we did. We did it in nine months, but we did it with a working with children check. But the message was we proved it, but we pivoted along the way when we realized mm, too complicated, not going to do it. But, but no one remembers that that wasn't the original agreement. And actually the pivot was a strong one and it made sense. And everyone embraced the fact that showing efficiency and speed and actually proving you could get into post offices in nine months when it was previously three years was actually the win. So keeping that real flex, and they were great at that real flexibility of, okay, that's not what we said, but actually we'll change it and we'll pivot. But yeah, that was the first time I'd actually seen it work at scale, but you know, chaos at the same time. Yeah, I love that. I'm just gonna pick a few words out there. So chaos, you started off with that. What was it? It was chaos. And most of these things are, and as you said, especially in the early days where there's confusion, there's no structure. But the key driver for that, a word I want to pick out is purpose. You know, yeah. there's, a, there's a phrase we use, the burning platform. And, you know, Cotter talks about having yeah. this sense of urgency, which clearly they had, because if you don't change your product, or your direction, yeah. then you're gonna you're gonna go off a cliff. And this in this age of yeah. digitalization, we saw that happen a lot. And I think that's often what's lacking in many organizations now. When you speak to them, why are you doing an agile transformation? Because everybody is. What we're seeing is a bandwagon effect. Yeah. And, and when you have that, there's far more yeah. disinclination, if you will, to get on board because people don't see the value. Whereas if you know if, yeah. if you don't do this, 
you're going to be out of a business in six, 12, nine months. So that allows you to then do what you did in such a short time, in three years to nine months. It's huge. That's so rapid, yeah, isn't well, it? Well, that chaos and that lack of purpose, like I still see today, like you get chaos is just working with large groups of people, like the con communication of helping people realize what we're doing when you're working at 300 to 1,000, like it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to remind people, remember, this is what we're doing. Remember, this is what we're doing. So you get chaos due to size and probably purpose is the number one thing lacking everywhere. I reckon if you can't describe your purpose in a one line and make it a smart, measurable goal, then like it's too confusing for people. People Absolutely. today, when I memorable. come in from a consultant perspective, yeah, make it memorable and everyone just, it's like a little tagline, but taglines work yeah. real well for memories implants and then it seeps into your head when you have your conversations. And frequently today, large organizations, you know, working on too many things. Oh, we've got 48 top priorities, which no one can remember the list. If you can't remember the list, then you're not doing it. One of my first thing, if you tell me what's on the list, but don't look at it, and if you can't tell me what's on the list without looking at it, it's too long. <laughs> Simple well, exactly. rules to help people purpose. And, and you've got the list, don't you? But then you say, okay, what's a priority? Yeah. Well, everything's a number one priority. Yeah. Well, if you've got 48, yeah. 50, yeah. 110, if they're all number one, then you have nothing. And that's a real indicator yeah. for me. It's like, it's like backlogs, isn't it? You know, what, what's your prioritized backlog? We don't have one, we just have a backlog of stuff and no one knows what to do in what yeah. order. That means you've got a clear lack of a strategy. Yeah. You don't know where you're going. It goes back to you yeah. don't have the purpose. And as you said, you can go around most executive yeah. boards and ask me, tell me the strategy and the values of the organization. Crickets. Yeah. Red faces of embarrassed looks going, oh, we don't know. Quick Google on their phone to see what it says on the website. Yeah. But if they don't know, yeah. how can you expect, as you say, in an organization of not only 350, but thousands now. I mean, you're talking literally thousands of people across the globe in these big organizations trying to do these transformations. And that's self, it's not chaos by numbers, that's chaos by self-creation because of not providing yeah. that top-down so, clarity from the exam. Yeah. So I freak, when we go in, we always start, so... Um, I always run a fitness test for organizations up front, which is I was going to go and check the lie of the land and see how you're going with people. One of the first things I always ask organizations that are running a transformation, and I love it, just simple questions. Ask everyone on the ground, what are you transforming? I love it. No one ever knows. And <laughs> no then it's just like, well, what is the strategy and what's good? And again, the message is no one knows. And it's funny, strategies frequently are pieces of paper. I find when you read them, they're actually pretty good. It's just, it's no one reads it and it's not referred to frequently enough. And that information isn't brought down to the team and kept alive for them. And um, because it's good when you read it, it's just, it's not referred to frequently enough. It's not put into a habit. It's not made into a little routine that like how I describe my work should probably anchor to the strategy, some sort of line mm -hmm. of sight. But yeah, I always ask, what are you transforming? Um, and what does, what is the strategy? And they're simple questions. And nine out of 10 people, when we ask them, don't know the answers to them. And it's 
it's not about that they're doing anything wrong. It's just it's just indicative as to, well, why are you in struggle today? Well, if they can't answer those questions and it's not clear, then obviously you won't achieve them because no one knows what they're trying to achieve. Exactly. And if you don't know where you're going, you're never going to get there. And you can't blame the individuals yeah. for that. And we did a great podcast with Gavin McMahon recently, and he was talking about storytelling. And he was saying the, the best way to get yeah. that information cascaded down and as you said, why do people, as great as they may be, not read strategies? Because they're dull. They're boring. You know, they're, they're written in such a way that they're not conducive to even picking it up and in, inciting interest. Yep. But if you can turn that into a yep. story that involves people, that engages people, yep. and that people can hear and see themselves in that journey, then they're going to know where they're going. And how they get there is, is what yep. you enable them to do, isn't it? You know, as the director, the executive you're providing that why and the yep. what, and then the how should be left to them. But if they don't know the why and the what, yep. if they don't know where they're going, how the hell are they going to do the how? Yeah, yep. so, so that's so probably what so we lean into. We... Yeah. Um, Sorry, well, when we, you know, what, what do we look for when we come in to assess transformations, what you've just said, right? And they love it because they're simple questions. Where are we going? How will I know when I'm there and where am I now? And it's almost the GPS and I am in Australia. So we'll always do, am I in Melbourne or am I in Canberra? Am I going to Sydney or am I going to Queensland? And the message is it matters. I need to know where I am now because the journey is different from Melbourne to Canberra and the destination if it's Sydney or Queensland, obviously like it's different. Um, so you lean into that storytelling narrative, which is if you're going to do a three-year strategy in 2027, tell me what's different from a customer perspective or an employee perspective. So bring it to life, okay? What will they do differently? How would they work with us? How would they engage it? But, you know, bring it to life. You're defining in a story. And I always time box my strategies. Pick a year. What's different? But tell me in a story from a customer perspective. And people remember that easily, right? Very easily. Uh, and I, again, two words there, customer and employee. How, how much are those yeah. two, two words overlooked or not, not the natural language of strategies, of executives? And even if they are, it's a tick box, isn't it? You know, we are biggest line most organizations tell themselves we are customer focused employees first yeah most, and when you get in there yeah most strategies yeah i read most strategies i read don't mention the customer at all um the most common is um revenue cost up cost down and um, yeah it's less about why a customer would want to stay with us or why we'd get new customers on board and why we feel we could have that point of difference yeah so it's very much how we'll make money, which is good. It's really important, but if there is a higher well, order of things, why would a customer buy in the first place? Yeah, yeah. No, I created a little graphic early this year that said ROI, you know, focus on ROI, people go down, focus on people, ROI goes yeah. up. And, and it's common sense. It's simple yeah. when you look yeah. at it. But as you said, it's that natural default focus of the executive board who we are seeing still applying these old school behaviors, the old school management styles of focus on the beans. I guess it's going to come in a quarterly review perchance, maybe, you know, and then you've got your monthly status of red, amber, greens, and it's all focused on speed, money, 
outputs versus outcomes, which is one of the big things that Agile is trying to push. As you said, customer focus, what are the outcomes we're achieving? And again, I remember back in another bank where yeah. we had one executive tech lead jump up, go, our, our team's delivered 44 widgets this month. And everyone's like, oh, wow, amazing. <laughs> it was only 28 last month. I just put my hand up and I said, so what? Yeah. And he was taken aback. Yeah. He was like, how dare you? I'm like, that's lovely. I said, but what's the impact on the customer? What's the impact on the team? Because I knew 26 of those had come back from the front line back into production, from production back into ops because they weren't working. So it's all great saying we've delivered all yeah. these things, but it's like sending out, we've, we've put a thousand cars on the road this month, but there's been a recall on half of them. So getting that yeah. mindset shift, I think, where have you seen the most effective shift in the mindset of the executive going from that 90s business school into what we hope to be the sort of agilist of the modern era? Yeah, it's probably the last question (laughs) as to, well, it is a tough question. So a CEO must encourage his executive team to work together and frequently executives are KPI'd in silos are functional. They never see themselves as a team, right? They always see themselves, I've got a team underneath me, but we are not a team together. So frequently their KPIs, their objectives and what they want to do from a strategic perspective, don't match, don't align. And when you come into technology teams to deliver, it's confusing because they actually haven't had the right conversations at the top. So I think the biggest thing where do I see it different? Like the smaller organizations work better um, because they're forced to due to that lack of dollars. But a CEO and a leadership group who have one vision as opposed to a product vision, a customer vision, a marketing vision. So they get quite functional very quickly and they never look at it from an enterprise perspective and how they will deliver value to customers. So... I think people who come into these roles have had a career working a certain way. And um, when you get to the top, you assume you're at the top of the tree. You forget that you have peers and actually you're in it. That's your number one team, right? Your executive leadership team. And I think a CEO that encourages to lean into one vision as opposed to multiple visions to achieve different KPIs is the win. But it's not common. And that, that is think, sound advice. And that is the win. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we've seen the pizza principle, haven't we? Yeah. Well, it's almost leaning into, if you're doing a transformation, transformations fail frequently due to politics, right? And mm. in your new world, from a transformation perspective, people will win, people will lose. It's having those conversations and having transparency on it today um, because people who will win will work well with your transformation. People who will lose will white ante. And you need to decide and carefully and have those conversations transparently as to um, how will the power dynamics change and shift because that influences how people will play in the future together. Absolutely. And I think... What executives often forget as they climb up the pole and get to those positions at the top, you have to stop being a specialist and become more generalist. You've got to, as you said, you've got to look left and right to where your peers are. And there's got to be give and take. We've got to stop the careerism. We've got to stop the own personal agendas. 
And that, again, goes back to the CEO. If he gives clear direction, if he sets a clear vision for the team horizontal, which then cascades downwards, that's the first hurdle to get over and prevent that agenda-driven behavior that we see. Because as you said, you quickly revert to functionalism and, and the specialist marketeer who's now the CMO or the CIO who's the tech head they're going to focus on those specific yeah. stovepipes. And we know that as you go into transformation, when we start dependencies across stovepipes across the organization is one of the biggest blockers to enabling effective you know, collaboration. Yeah. And a, a good leader will move people off. Like I think human beings naturally move to self-preservation um, over mm. group collective outcomes. And a good CEO needs to enforce the right behavior because humans naturally go to self, me over everyone else, self-preservation. And that means I kill your ideas or I stop them working because I don't win in it. Then that's a win because I preserve myself in that. So a CEO who's ignores that or is passive in his conflict management, um, like it's, it's happening. You can't ignore it and avoiding it and being passive up, it doesn't make it go away. It just means it's gone underground, right? You must yeah. deal with that conflict in the open. Yeah. You do, because if you don't, you lose credibility as the leader. Now, if you're the CEO and people see that, and it's like everything is, it's one bad employee ignored, will see yeah. all your good employees leave yeah. and go out the door because their frustrations yeah. mount hugely with that. Yeah. And I, and I think that's having that hard conversation as a C-suite, as a CEO, as the owner is absolutely imperative in this day and age. Because as you said, the more chaos this gets, the more complexity we face into, which is going to happen every day. There's, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And the more you have to be even more rigorous in those decisions that you make and you have to call out the bad behaviors, you have to make the hard calls. And it doesn't mean that you're firing people. It means yeah. that you're having the conversation and giving people the opportunity because sometimes they don't even realize you're doing it. Because as you said, it's human, it's natural human behavior yeah. to revert to that yeah. inner preservation. And I, I, it's tough. I think it's it's important to say it's not about blame and it's just calling out. That's not an acceptable way to deal with an issue. Yeah. And if you put those guardrails in, you'll actually encourage the right behaviors. But yeah, it's not to see people are good or bad. It's just, as you say, it's learned behavior along the way. And um, we learned bad behaviors in childhood. We learned them even more in a corporate environment, but it's just calling out, working together. And if someone's not playing, that we make it visible and we have a conversation in front of everyone, right? Which is because that's how grown-ups deal with their conflict. They put it on the table oh. um, as opposed to subvert. More great words there. <laughs> under the table. Working together, <laughs> grown-ups, yeah. getting it all yeah. out on the table, having hard conversations. I think that, that's a great, great ending to, to pause for the break there. But so, you know, working together, having grown-up conversations and putting the problems on the table so we can all discuss them. If that's your executive team and you're not doing that, then there's some great advice there. Right, let's take a break and we'll come back afterwards because I want to talk about your book. Hey, folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. 
Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Great. So welcome back. Uh, during the break, we were having a little conversation about conflict avoidance and how potentially where you come from, Ireland, England, Australia, might affect how you deal with conflict. Susan, talk to me about conflict avoidance in your experience. Passive aggressive behavior is probably something I was not aware existed when I used to work, probably in Ireland or in London. Um, I didn't realize, obviously, probably in Irish culture, um, isn't conflict avoidant. If I've been brought up to, if I have an opinion that I will share an opinion and I've never been afraid to share my opinions. Probably working in financial industries in London, there's a bullish nature to the people who work in that. And again, I probably naturally fitted in with it. When I came to Australia for the first time, I realized my method and my approach and an Australian method and approach. And I also worked for HTC. I had to learn into a Taiwanese culture of um, how to raise up conflict and realize actually the cultural elements on conflict are fascinating. And the fact that as an Irish person, I want to tackle conflicts and if I have a problem, put it on the table, I realize isn't the cultural norms in Australia and actually definitely not the cultural norms in Taiwan. Um, I had to learn about cultures like Saving face, I didn't understand like what saving face mean. It's a very important thing from a Taiwanese um, culture perspective. And I've had to learn different conflict avoidance strategies to raise issues and how I might do it. And an Irish way, put it on the table, doesn't work in a Taiwanese culture. I need a new way to put it onto the table. And in Australia, um, yeah, so where you're from matters. And you again, it's not right or wrong. It's just acknowledging that we all have differences. And if it's important to discuss it, my blunt method, which might work well on the London trading floor and in Ireland probably doesn't translate to um, businesses in Melbourne or in Taiwan. So yeah, like everything in life, I've learned the hard way. <laughs> No, no, it's great. And I think, I think we can, I'm, I'm from York. I know the UK have got their stiff upper lip and the Brits don't like to have engagement. I'm from Yorkshire. I'm ex-military. So I'm, I'm like you. I'm pretty direct. I can't <laughs> keep things, you know, closed in and I need to get them on the table. And probably like you, I've learned the hard way many times of, you know, maybe, maybe not getting my message across in the most finessed way that one could, but which is why we do the whole red team thinking thing. One of our big things is teaching people how to disagree agreeably. Yeah. How can you be, you know, if you think, you know, so I work with Susan, she disagrees all the time. Uh, she's not a team player. She's very provocative. But if you say, I work with Susan, she disagrees all the time, but she does it in such an agreeable manner. Yeah. She's really provocative, but she's so professional with it. You know, it, it's those words that really help us be more collaborative. And I think one yeah. of the key things, and you touched on it, is understanding different people's backgrounds, different people's heritage, and cultures because what we're trying to achieve in life especially in the workplace is diversity of thought yep. and we know that the hr crazies go off on these huge diversity agendas tick all those boxes bring all these different people in from around the world throw them in an organization and then what they don't help them become inclusive they don't educate them on how to understand each other's cultures each other's backgrounds and then you get powder kegs exploding across the organization with you and I walk into one room and set it on fire. Yeah. And everyone's throwing spears back at us then. So 
what what's one of the ways that you've found enabling that collegial collaboration because again agile is all about collaboration yeah. working together people over tools etc maybe let's talk uh, about like, later what have you found worked i like to give people simple tactics to help them with decisions with the messages we start with principles trying to get a group like even just choose 10 people to agree on something's actually really hard <laughs> everyone's got an opinion, ignoring going on a bigger group. And the message is, let's accept it. And then I give them guidelines. I always do decision-making. Is this a captain's call? Is this an SME call? Or is this a democracy? And we agree on the method. And then we respect the decision. If we agree it's a captain's call, captain decides. And we all support the decision. So I give them simple tactics to make those decisions, which the assumption is, Getting people to agree is real hard, but let's agree on the method. There's only three ways to do it. This is not a democracy, but if it is a democracy for some decisions that we agree, majority rules. So we put the rules in place and the guidelines. Captains, SME, democracy, we agree which way we're going. And then whoever makes the call, we respect and we fold together. And anyone who doesn't, we bring it back to the table. Hey, we agree the rules of the game were the following. Do you disagree with the rules of the game? And I think... People like that as a style of an approach. First off, it's real simple. It's not complicated. And frequently decisions, we some are captain's calls, some are democracy calls, and some are an SME calls. People get it, and it's logical, and they make sense to it. And then this is back to just reinforcing behavior. If someone falls out of that, like we, we call them out and say, well, we've agreed this is the model, Um it was a captain's call. You didn't like the decision, but we all agreed that we would respect the captain's call. And even if I disagree with it, when I leave this room, we're supporting captain's call because that's what the model is and how it works. So I like simple tactics for decisions and conflict. And I find stuff I like that. That's brilliant. I think that's brilliant. And, and it's so essential because despite the fact how people may behave, as humans, we want direction. We want clarity. Yep. And if you can come in, especially in chaos, you know, if we're in chaos, we nearly need just someone to take us by the hand and say, right, we're going over there. Yes. Okay, I get that. And everybody goes that way. And if you put those real simple, you know, processes, principles in place that everyone agrees, one of the things I do with organizations, I do a team working agreement. You know, yep. How are we going to use the tech? How are we using teams? How are we working asynchronously? And and you think it's true. And when you're going through it, like, oh, what are we doing this for? But then when you work through it, they go, wow, that was causing us so much pain before through yeah. lack of alignment, through lack of clarity, through, well, well, I, I thought we were doing this, Susan. Well, I thought we were doing that, Marcus. I call it gaps and overlaps. Yeah. That you get these huge, because I assume or I presume, yeah. and you do the same, and then we're either overlapping our work and duplicating effort, or we're so far apart, there's a massive gap that someone turns around and goes, why wasn't that done? And you point your finger at me and I point my finger at you. But if you have that simplicity, which I love, that three levels of decision making, yeah. and that's so important. And even if you don't like it, fine, voice your opinion, yeah. explain why you don't, but then shut up, agree that we're going with the majority or the captain's call and walk out and get behind it. Well, it's decision making's not perfect. And sometimes just yeah. make a decision. And most decisions are reversible. It's very rare that decision is not reversible. We're not jumping out of planes without parachutes. So, like, I mean, if we. Yeah. Get more information and we change your mind next week. Well, I don't know. We'll worry about it next week. Let's not worry about everything now. Other tactics I use is making people put skin in the game and commitment. So 
we do workshops and we do facilitation, we'll always at the end of it, if we're agreeing to these rules, um, we'll get people to put how they will make them work and sign their name on them. People, when you make them, put their own sentence on it and put a signature towards it. Think about what they are saying differently. We call them cute little commitment ceremonies. So obviously it's it's more symbolic than anything else, but the sim- symbolism works well for people um, and it stops the silent white anting when you have to share what your statement was and you put your signature to it. Like it's changes mindsets for people. I love that. And that goes back to my story about the boss getting the cash out on the table, doesn't it? Yeah. People are taking ownership. Yeah. They're taking accountability. And that's what's, you know, if everybody's engaged, nobody's engaged. If everybody's responsible, nobody's responsible. But yes. if you put your name to things and if you take some accountability and if you, if you're part of the journey, understand it. It's like, it's like it's nothing worse than a strategy handed off to people to execute who weren't involved in the planning. Yes. You know, they're not bought in. They're not engaged with the, the reason and the ethos behind it. So if you can take ownership of something, you're going to get a far more effective outcome. And I loved what you said about decisions. No decision is perfect. And if we have to change it when new information comes in downrange, so be it. But I think that's going back to the executive. That's one of the hardest things I see for executives to do because they've got this position of I'm the leader, therefore I make the decisions. That's okay. <laughs> Sometimes you do if you're the captain. Yeah. But don't be so arrogant that that decision might be wrong next week. Not that it's wrong today when you made it. We're in this complex world. Information's changing constantly. So today you made the right decision, but next week it may be wrong. And that's Thank okay. You, but if you don't have the humility to go, do you know what? Things have changed. It's not that I can't do that because I'm wrong and people will see me as the failed leader. It's just having that awareness and humility to go, right, things have changed, Rehuddle, right team, the decision I made last week or we made is now no longer effective. How often do you see that being a blocker for people's behavior? Uh, Probably frequently. I think new leaders who come into roles feel it's their job to stamp down how to do things and they need to have all the answers, um, which is illogical and silly. Um, it's impossible to have all the answers. We work <laughs> Illogical, <laughs> silly and impossible. Yeah. yeah, It's almost that inexperience or lack of maturity and it's feeling that you, you know, must have no weakness and no vulnerability instead of going, actually, my strength is my weakness and my vulnerability. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's... Lots of leaders don't do it because they feel um, it will look bad on them to either change their mind um, as opposed to, you know, people like seeing when leaders own up to making a wrong decision or changing the mind. Like, it's good, right? It's It adds yeah. depth to relationships and it it's adds depth. Human. Yeah. 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 There's a favourite quote of mine. I won't coin it exactly, but Ian Conn, who was – Back in 2018, it was a CEO of Centrica, so British Gas, the utilities. And he stood up at a finance, finance conference at the time. And he said, look, he said, the world today is moving too fast. He yeah. said, it, a great quote, he said, it's revolution, not evolution. And he mm-hmm. said, and I don't think that these super CEOs, political leaders can make the decisions that they used to do anymore. And, and you just can't. As you said, it's, it's illogical, it's silly, it's impossible to think that you as an individual – can deal with everything going on in this complex world and make those decisions in isolation and be right, you know, even if you do that, and expect them to be right and stand the test of time. 
So I think it's great, as you said, show a little humility. A lot of this is driven by imposter syndrome and the perspective of what they have as a leader. Because again, when do people first get to understand what leadership is when they get dropped in the role? There's no training. And one of the things we're trying to do is I say leadership is a capability. It's not an individual. Because when you walk into an organization and go, tell me about the leadership, they all naturally look upwards kind of thing as if it's up there somewhere. And if you don't understand that leadership is something that you're capable of, and and I do this when I'm briefing new intern groups, you know, you are now a leader in this organization. And they look at you like, what? A, I'm not getting paid enough. And B, I don't want to do that. But you have to, and I teach my kids this, you know, you have to take accountability to to be a leader and a follower where yep. appropriate. Because if something yep. needs to get done and you see that, don't sit back quietly. Step up, yep. take take control. And it doesn't matter whether you're the CEO or the newest intern. If you see something, but it's giving people the confidence and the, the techniques, as you talked about, these simple techniques to allow them to speak up and do so. Well, I've, as you've leaned into it, like, it's a skill to learn to be a leader. Everyone can learn it. And frequently we put leaders into these roles with zero skills and they rarely get their muscle for leadership ever built or it's never even discussed what, what is leadership and how should I apply it? And we just expect it to naturally happen. And it doesn't, right? Nothing naturally happens. You need to learn and see some role modeling and what good is. And if you don't role model good, role modeling bad will happen in um, because people just learn ad hoc. So, yeah, it's about building that leadership muscle, but it frequently doesn't happen. Uh, absolutely, because like everything else, there's this assumption that it's a default, I call it. You know, you get your promotion, you open your cornflakes packet, and out falls your next rank and your capability of being a leader within that. But it doesn't happen. Yeah. It's just like if you want to increase your biceps, get a six-pack, you go to the gym and you work that muscle in a disciplined, yeah. you know, rigorous, structured way. That's the same, and it's the same for leadership. Uh, and one of our big things is critical thinking. You yeah. know, we, we teach people how to think, right? Because we don't, as humans, having thoughts doesn't make you a critical thinker. Yeah. And again, I'll do a room. Whoever's in the room, I'll put everyone's first question. Hands up, who thinks they're a critical thinker? <laughs> and your system one brain kicks in and goes, yes, we are. Hand up, Marcus. Before I know it, my hand's in the air. And then I go, okay, 95% of the room thinks they are. The 5% who didn't put their hand up are just shy, but still think they are. But then you go through techniques and exercises that show you that you're not. You know, intuition isn't thinking. It's going with your gut reaction. And it's the same with leadership. Just because you're now 20 years in the business and manager of X or director of Y. Doesn't make you a leader. No, there could be an intern who's just joined, who's a captain of his five-a-side football team, who's got way more leadership capacity, capability and skills than you as a 20 year old executive. And I think you talked about the word earlier, humility. We need humility to A, like Ian Conn did, recognize that the landscape's changed. Recognize that it's not all on you. You know, I'm not the superhero now. There's no cape that came with that cornflakes packet. And also recognize that I have great people surrounding me. You know, I jokingly say, I am awesome. And I'm not awesome because I'm awesome. I am awesome because I have surrounded myself throughout my life with amazing people, with the skills that I've needed in the situations I've been in. And we all move forward and we are collectively, the Lego movie, everything is awesome. Because if you get the right people, the right skills, awesomeness is a default outcome. That's what your transformational change is. We're now awesome and we're achieving great things. 
Well, you either engage the entire organization or you decide you're the only decision maker because you're the only clever person in the room. And like, you won't win, right? You can't compete against an organization which has enabled all the decision makers and kind of capabilities in an organization as opposed to making decisions at the top and just making people follow them. As you say, we get people out of the bed in the morning. People don't enjoy Human nature hates being told what to do. Absolutely it hates. Does. You got you to give people some choice on the matter, or it won't work. Yeah. Uh, and it's ironic, isn't it? In this, in this, in this world we're in now, where you know, right now, the, the latest Gallup polls, employee engagement in the workplace is at the lowest ever for the last nine years, twenty three percent. In Europe, we're at thirteen percent. That's the lowest across the ten global yeah. regions that they focus on. Business Agility Institute. You talked about the statistics on why transformations fail, the numbers. The number one reason, I think, for four out of the last five years was leadership. Yep. So it, it's not the processes. It's not the tools. It's not people. I think during COVID, it was change fatigue was the number yep. one reason. A leadership dropped to number two. It's back up to number one again. So all of this, all this aspiration for business agility, which, again, has been overcome by this sort of ubiquitous of agile everywhere as the golden bullet. So what we're seeing is executives seeing this thing as the bandwagon to jump on because that's going to bring them what they need for transformation. But it's failing miserably. And jumping to your book now, is this the end of agility? Who wants to be fast and adaptive anyway is the title of your book. Clearly, that's sticking the pig with a sharp pointy stick. Talk to me about the title. Do you believe it? Or are you just trying to get a reaction? It's been said in market um, by technology teams, which is, we don't do Agile. It doesn't work. Agile is dead. Um, so I wanted, and I find the Agile community can't cope with criticism. Um, and, and, and basically, Sensitive well, avoid it and go, and I love it, act, measure, adapt. Like, isn't that the ethos? Um, so we welcome feedback. And I says, saying that agile is dead is actually feedback. Um, and you can ignore it or you can embrace it. And my message was, well, don't, shouldn't we understand why people are saying it? Like, let's unpack it. Let's own our shit and encourage the fact that um, people are saying it and me ignoring it isn't going to make it go away. So I hear a lot of noise and I've seen, and I'm a true agilist. I love it. It works real well, but it's a matter of, well, what is that? And um, what do I mean when I say that? And it's almost, I don't like using the word because people go, oh, ways of working. And I'm like, I don't even know what that is. Like, you know, (laughs) I don't want to sit in the corner in the center of excellence and tell people how they need to do their job. That's not what I mean when I do it. The goal is we have very clear North Star on where we're going and we help a team get there. And there's many tactics that we can use to get there. Are they agile? Are they lean? Are they whatever? They could be standard project management practices. I'm like, if it works, we'll use it. Obviously, right? As opposed to a real purist set of um, tactics. My favorite thing about kind of agile and scrum and leaning into it is it's based on empiricism, which seems to get missed everywhere. And empiricism is about being evidence-based and medicine and science are both empiric scientists, right? Which is they look at evidence 
and they welcome negative and positive findings. Obviously, thank God, because that's how they test their drugs. And then they take those feedbacks in and then they change and they modify around it. Agile is based on the same thing, empiricism, as medicine and science. However, we seem to skip off these things and move more into the fluffy side of things. So, like, I mean, I enjoy, I'm reasonably analytical. I enjoy the fact this is meant to be evidence-based. You must have a reason. And um, I lean into it in my book, which is we must baseline. If we haven't decided what problem that I need to fix, how could I know whether I'm getting better or not? But we need to agree on the problem. What's the problem that we want to have fixed? So I lean in with organizations and I write it in my book, which is run a fitness test, which is baseline your performance today across 10 different capabilities. An organization has three muscle groups, which is outcomes first, fast and frequently, behavior-led cultural change, and then a self-learning organization. If you can baseline against 10 capabilities, look at those three different muscle groups. And my message is, depending on where your weakness are in that fitness group, depends as to what muscle I need to build, okay? And your workouts for your muscles are different <laughs> depending on what the problem is. I frequently find people, you know, iterations, quarterly plans, backlogs, and I'm like, well, like, what's the problem? Like, do you really want a backlog? Is it gonna, what's the problem it's solving? I'm confused. Or long, I love it, long-lived teams. Like, what do you want a long-lived team for? And, oh, you know, people, people miss, well, you have to have a reason for doing it. You should write it down. You should agree that these are the problems. We should figure out some sort of measure of success. And then when we've done that, we should have tactics which are targeted to solve the problems instead of going agile. Like it's just a big bucket right, of things. Oh, where, where did it all go wrong? We're having this conversation. It's just all straightforward and simple, isn't it? And I was doing agile and scrum long before you know, 2001, I was in the military. This is how we operate. It's common sense. As you said, North Star, where are we going? Where's the pin on the map? How do we get there? There's mountains there. There's rivers there. Ask the team. Let's build a bridge. Let's rent an airplane, whatever. Then there's, this thing, Agile, came in, and it just became a bastardized version of the perceived silver bullet. We've seen the consultancies jump on the bandwagon. And as you said, take the little bits of everything and do what works rather than what we see as a one-stop shop, you know, the Spotify model. Yeah. Remove Spotify and rebrand it with every, com every company, and that's what they're getting sold in. And it goes back to these leaders who we said aren't aware, aren't knowledgeable, aren't understanding what's required. Therefore, they hang their hat on this to drive it through. And by doing that, you're not exercising the specific muscle groups in the areas you need to do. You're doing this big carte blanche yeah. one hit for everything and then you wonder why it's like the guy goes to the gym every day isn't it and he works yeah. back shoulders feet it does everything in his one hour yeah. session and then by the end of six months he wonders why nothing's changed <laughs> because you're not targeting you're not focusing on the key areas you're not doing your buys and tries for a week and understanding yeah. the right technique for that yeah how, how have you seen your your question set when you go in there and you do this fitness test how have you seen that pan out normally? What sort of levels from a sort of zero to 10? Where do people think they are? What's the gap analysis on what the reality is that you found? Well, it's, it's interesting. So I like to take an evidence-based approach. 
Uh, when I go into organizations, the answer is frequently you can't take an evidence-based approach. You must be qualitative, right? Because there's no evidence. Like, I mean, there's nothing to use up front. And I almost bring, well, and I says, well, you know what? We'll start with the qualitative. What do you think? And then I'll run um, some workouts and tests and we can figure out, well, was that right or not? But today, organizations run on opinions. They don't run on facts, on evidence. So, yeah, the first thing I find when I go in, actually, and I want to run a fitness test and I want to use some evidence, and we talk about ways of doing it. We talk about qualitative interviewing, chatting with people. We talk about evidence, looking at what happened in the past 12 months, looking at works, what didn't work. And frequently, it's a vacuum of information, to be honest, or almost too much information that you can't see anything. And so we kind of piece it together and we put some leaps of faith in, actually, seen this a million and one times before trust me this is what it looks like and i'm gonna leap it straight for you a little bit here it's you know it's i can't 100 percent show you but let's go with my gut feel with these little bit of indicators as to why i think that and i kind of take them forward a little bit but people never disagree with those tones or themes and I think the big win is to help them realize okay if we're agreeing on those problems and then it's an alignment exercise do we agree we should solve those problems and it's a choice which ones will we solve first and then I come in okay well I've got targeted workouts I can help you to do it if you've got no clarity on purpose I come in with some workouts well I've got um, impact my first one on that is inspire with a north star I've got a little workout where we'll go if no one has any purpose and we don't have clarity on where we're going we'll do inspire with a north star which is we do some of that storytelling we put a date associated with it and we help people realize and we make it experiential it's the storytelling but frequently we make it experiential so people understand it so we bring to life what that north star is let me come in with stuff on the M. Measure what matters, okay, and help people measure the right things. And organizations today frequently measure initiatives, right? A list of things to do. That's what an initiative is. Like, yeah. I'm not going to be an old school project manager. I don't mind it, but like, it's just a list of things to do. And the problem with a list of things to do is it's never ending. <laughs> like, it never ends, know, is it? It's never ending. It just goes on forever. And if you want to measure at that level, like, that's not a win, like, you know, so you, you'll you'll lose if you want to measure lists of things to do. So it's helping them realize, well, what is important? I'm looking at stuff from, well, why do customers stay? How do I know if they're staying? And introducing perhaps evidence for market. If I release something, are customers using it? What's their frequency of usage? Um, has anyone touched it already? Is there complaints associated with it? So bringing that feedback loop in from market to help them decide as to what they use, but to teach them to be fact-based as opposed to opinion-based. And that's you know, it's a journey for people to go on um, to help them realize, well, you don't have any evidence. Um, I can help you get there and we can encourage those good behaviors. And But yeah, you don't have any evidence today. That's probably the biggest challenge. Exactly, isn't it? And, and that's what I've always found fascinating. You know, JIRA or Atlas, all these different agile tools get a real bashing from the agilists. <laughs> but they're the most effective ways of getting the data that you need. And if you set them up, and I, 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 I love JIRA. I'll, I'll put my hand up. Yeah. I'll say it. Don't stone me. Because I know how to use it. And I know yeah, how to use it. Yeah, funny that, isn't it? So it's all those I find that are bashing it are not understanding how it should be used. 
And if you if you use it well and collate it across teams and let it it gives you that data that you need and it allows you to get those leading indicators to see yep. what's going to happen in the future to allow you to interject where you need to do rather than just this something where you're bashing your updates every day so someone else can read it and not not request a rag status because they can go and see yeah. it. It's impossible to have teams of hundreds or thousands without a tool like Jira. It's like impossible. It is a communication tool. In a small team, unnecessary? No. Um, 50, 100 and above, 100% necessary. Yeah. I frequently give talks when I go to conferences, and one of the things I do is transparency at scale. And I talk about the benefits of a common language, which is one of the challenges we use in Jira is no one looks at how people write write what it is. And frequently it's just, and executives never look. Now, my first thing when I sit to a team, I always sit down, I'll sit down with squads and I always like to deep dive with people and I'll always ask them, so what are you working on? Tell me. And I'll get them to talk it through. And then I'll go, you know what? Now let's look at Jira and see how you've recorded it. And then I'm like, do you see how nicely you described that to me? <laughs> I don't see any of that in your Jira tickets. How can I understand yeah. it in the verbal story? And I talk about a common language, which is Jira is suitable for a team to record their work. But the main goal of Jira is to communicate with other teams. And if you don't make that in simple English that everyone can read and understand, then it doesn't make any sense. So I teach teams a common language in Jira so that they can use it as a communication tactic. I mean, you use Jira properly, it's fantastic, but you need a common language. Yeah. Absolutely. And that goes back to your decision-making. It's a simple process. It's a simple set yeah. of principles that when we put this into Jira, we'll all put it in the same way. It will mean yeah. the same thing. And I'm a hard ass on this from the military. You know, we've literally got a dictionary. When we say defend, there's an actual means- explanation. What that, and everyone, it doesn't matter where you are on the globe, when you say defend that position, everyone knows exactly what that means. When we say attack, you know, there's all these specific words. And you so often go into organizations, and this is where you get the ambiguity. It's self generated because people are saying things. And again, the boss will walk in, mention something, and you and I'll go, Oh, I think it means this. And I'll go that way. And you'll go, I thought they meant this. And you'll go that way. So it's real. You know, the, the, the clarity of the English language, the spoken word, word I'm yeah. saying that words mean things. Yeah. And the words mean things to different people at different times. So if you're not clear yeah. on them and you don't and have it, that exact what it means, then you're going to cause confusion. And like there's so many words for the same thing, like hiring somebody, mobilizing a team. I'm interviewing. I'm like going through a recruitment process. Like all of those are valid but I can't tell if I have 150 squads, who doesn't have a complete squad? I actually just need to know. Um, and let's just yeah. pick a word. It doesn't matter what word we pick. What matters is we all use the same words because at scale, I need pattern recognition on the words, right? I can't be doing it. Oh, you've used that and you've used this. I just need them to choose choice of words for the same activities. And then that's the common language that you bring in. So yeah, looking at those definitions is great. And that's it. And that, that gives you that radar. And going back to what Ian Conn said, it's too complex now to deal with it. But if you've got this, and in the military, we used to have what's called the knowledge wall. And I've seen yeah. this in what they call it, war rooms, awful phrase. But, you know, a lot of organizations are now getting these big technical rooms that are taking all these fees. And you can walk in and say, you know, right, this word's popping up everywhere. That's an indicator yeah. that there's a problem here. Or, you know, if you're working rag statuses and you've got ambers everywhere, there's probably something going wrong. If it's yeah. all green, there's probably something going wrong. You know, you've got to get the clarity here of why these things are working 
in the way they yeah. are. So the book is clearly there to antagonize and get people to sit up and listen because agility clearly isn't dead, but the way people are doing it is going to cause it to die is my takeaway well, from the conversation. Yeah, well, my message is anyone who doesn't want an organization that's fast and adaptive is a fool. Like, of course you want a fast and adaptive organization. But if you want to come in on the how without looking at the what and the why, then you will fail. And there's something on discipline, which is do any journey for the first time or learn any skill for the first time. You'll fail up front and it doesn't matter what the skill is. And learning, teaching teams to work differently, it will fail up front. Your failure rate, it's almost guaranteed. It's almost gone. Acknowledge it. Don't expect it. And don't over invest up front. I frequently over invest up front and then I get disappointed when they don't get the results. My message is you're failing up front because you're learning something new and to learn something new is hard. Um, so the first time you're going to do it, don't overinvest, trial it, expect it to not be how you want it to be. And then just small bits, small bits, small bits, but stick with it. It's like any sort of fitness, which is why I've leaned into it. It's discipline and it's habit. And it's looking at that evidence to decide on that from a journey perspective. So I think all organizations, and I should be agile. Like, I hate that the word is so tainted. Like, I even use in my book, agility, because I didn't want to use the word agile. But using the word agile and agility, like, how could the word be so tainted? And I discuss in the book, like, calling an organization agile or using the word agility is like, in the real estate industry, using the word luxury or using the word boutique. Like, it means nothing. Everything is luxury and everything is boutique. And there's that's why I learned into fitness and muscle groups and workouts. It's actually the same thing, and all of it is agile. I just find people have greater curiosity, and I can hook them quicker when I ask them, oh, yeah, how fits your organization? And they always go, hmm, what do you mean? Do you think I'm fitter? than that organization over there. And you have them on their little insecurities, but it's almost just a cute little hook to get people to pay attention. If I use the word agile or agility, I only ever get two responses. Oh. Yeah, we do already. Or we tried that and that didn't work. So now it's cool. But if I bring in fitness, people are curious. So I change the language to help people realize, don't think you know it already. There's actually, I'm going to give you a different angle or lens to look at the problem. To be honest, it's obviously the same thing. It's about communication with people. But actually, the goal is to spark their curiosity. And when you spark the curiosity, then I can go on that journey. But if I use the word agile and agility, I can spark curiosity. So I don't use the language anymore, to be honest. That is brilliant advice to end on. You're, you're dampening the flame. The minute you use that word, you're putting the yep. fire out. Whereas yep. you said, you're sparking curiosity, goes back to people, people wanna be engaged. People get up in the morning to go to work to be engaged. It's the lowest it is right now. Why? Because people aren't allowed to be curious anymore. There's that yep. conformity conveyor belt we've all gotta get on. I love what you're doing. It's bringing agility back into where it should be. It's the key to save us going forward, but we've gotta focus on empiricism getting the right data and sparking that curiosity in our people. Any final piece of advice to leaders out there today, Susan? 
probably just that what and the why. If you can't provide that purpose and if you can't provide that clarity, and I'm going to say it in a one-liner, which is real easy for people to understand, then getting you're just doing work, okay, and you'll never get anywhere. So, yeah, line everyone up and point them in the right direction is the number one thing you can do, right? Line everyone up and put them, point them in the right direction. Spoken like a, a true military person. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Susan. It's been great having you on The Thinking Leader this week, and I look forward to speaking to you in the future. Nice to chat, Marcus. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessments. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.